Hi guys, it's Sam Antosia from the Vento Bros, the Business Brothers. I'm here with Rick Smith. Uh, Rick and I met through the Muskegon Inventors Network. Anybody in the Muskegon, Ottawa County area, Muskegon County area, highly recommend that you check it out. Uh, it's an awesome group of individuals who are looking to invent things, looking to run their own businesses and uh, learn some different tips and tools. Um, if you want to check it out, you can go to minventors.com, M-I-N-V-E-N-T-O-R-S dot com to check it out. Highly recommend it. Anyways, uh, Rick has an awesome uh, load of experience I'm excited to have him share with you. Uh, to start with, he he led a company to uh, to the stock exchange. As well as he helped to, um, he helped them to, well, in that process, he helped them raise over $24 million. Um, so I'm excited to have him talk about how he can help other companies raise capital. Currently, right now, Rick is working with Hyvita. Uh, they've raised nearly $600,000 using equity crowdfunding. He's also filed two patent applica- applications and he essentially conducted and organized Hyvita's first full scale production run of its hydrogen-infused sparkling waters. So Rick, what got you started on this path? What did you What did you really start out on? I know that you went to college. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And uh, essentially, like you got a job offer out of college, and what was your decision when you came out of college that made you help you decide on that job offer? Um, well, hey, that's, hey, thanks for having me. First of all, I appreciate that. Um, um, there's a nice intro. I'm, I'm more modest than that, but um, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I grew up in Michigan at the Michigan State University, got an undergraduate mechanical engineering. Um, but you know, in general, uh, I had an appetite for technology, loved it. I think um, more of a passion for strategy and business, and um, you know, I thought, why not get that mechanical engineering degree? That's a, a great technical foundation. I can apply that. In, in a lot of places, even in business, if I wanted to. And um, that's what I managed to do. So I uh, graduated with a mechanical engineering degree from Michigan State. It seems like your only path is to the automobile industry. And I did have an opportunity to work for General Motors, and I turned it down for, um, in favor of a, a lower-paying job for a small business and ended up working for a company that did x-ray optics. And I learned a lot, and I was in the sales and commercial side. And we tripled the size of the business and ultimately sold it and and an opportunity, wow. yeah, and I had an opportunity to move on, and I worked for a company that made um, really technology, high technology stuff, semiconductor sensors um, for X-ray gamma ray imaging, Homeland Security, medical imaging, that sort of thing, and it was just crazy cool technology. Um, got a lot of exposure on the business side. The, the parent company was founded by a bunch of scientists, uh, very analytical, very deep-thinking company. They were publicly traded. Uh, we were a small part of that business, and um, um, it's very complex technology. But the parent company elected to divest of it, and uh, we sold it off. And you know, through that process, I sold a company. A, I was the pitch man for a company, and I was basically getting myself fired in the process and hired at the same time. And <laughs> went through that, and that was you know the economy tank. This was '09 through calendar or year '13. And the parent company uh, that acquired us was really struggling, and um, uh, they had lost defense contracts and so forth, and we were struggling, and a lot of money was going into R&D, and the parent company was on the brink of bankruptcy, and so um, and I went to the CEO and said, let me spin this company you just acquired four years prior, let me, let me spin this out, uh, let me save this business. Um, hmm. And we were a sole source vendor of unique technology to a lot of companies. And so if we went under, 
there's probably a thousand people that lose their jobs, um, 50 at the company that I was running and trying to sell, but our customers were may not make it. Um, so, just, Rick, what what made you what made you confident that you could turn it around and, and get it going in the right direction? There. Well, I think at some point you you, you know. Was, was it confident they could turn it around? I, you know, I believe there, there was some confidence they could turn it around. I believe that when you have a parent company that's totally distressed, can't put the necessary capital into the business, can't allocate the, the necessary time to resurrect the business, um, they had other issues to manage. Um, but it was also um, perhaps the least negative approach, right? I mean, if you're on a sinking ship, you've got to get off it, even if the you don't know what the, the, the viability of the next ship is, um, you at least know you're not on a sinking ship. And that's what I managed to do. We sold it off to a, a company of equivalent size. They were uh, venture capital backed. And this was my first real deep exposure into to venture and institutional funding like that. And um, okay. and it was a merger. The company that acquired us was the same size. And, um, you know, it was a carve out. And, you know, four months after we merged with this uh, VC-backed company, the company that... Uh, previously on this file for bankruptcy. Really? So yeah, we were able to save the company and the staff and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, and then it really became a fun ride because um, the, one of the reasons I was so passionate about that business was the team and the people. I've been there for about 10 years and um, I owe it to them um, and I owe it to the customers who trusted in me. And, um, and we were making a lot of strides in the R&D, and it was getting close to, uh, you know, harvesting some of that in terms of commercial business. Um, and so we were able to secure some deals, and then we, at the time, it was a, it was a very good fit with this uh, company that we merged with in, out of England, and um, uh, we were able to take it public on the London Stock Exchange, and that was about seven months, six, seven months after uh, we merged. So we went from completely hemorrhaging um, and struggling with a parent company to uh, closing some deals and taking a hundred-person company, taking a public raising twenty-four million, and it was a exciting ride. And you know, we had a, had a fun go of it for a few more years and um, learned a ton. Um, and you know, I told my wife it would be a five-year journey with this company, and it, it was more like twelve. Um, so <laughs> I wanted to, you know, uh, I did my tour of duty. I yeah. learned a tremendous amount. Um, you know, deep valleys, big peaks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and was able to cash out some stock options, and you know, I, I, I learned a bit. And it was time, I think, for me to um, start something new. Um, so when you when you start when you start out at Michigan State and you got that initial job offer, what made you decide to go with the lesser paying job? Were you were you confident in your decision? Were you a little scared? Were you worried about possibly making the wrong decision there? Um, no, you know, the, at the end of the day, um, it was still okay pay. You know, it was, um, and there's a lot of books and things about there in terms of compensation and. You know, everything vectors off that first salary, and they'll tell you if you get that, you know, because companies ask you what what do you make, and they're going to use that as a figure right, to pay you what what they're going to pay you now, mm-hmm. opposed to what they, you know, independent of that feel like you're worth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality was, you know, as individuals, and, um, you know, I'm not a millennial, I'm a little older than that, but mm-hmm. I think that might be more of a millennial thing to do, and that is, what makes you happy? What are you going to learn? Yeah. Um, how are you going to pad your resume and develop the experiences that, that you need? 
Um, and I, and I felt, um, being part of a, of a massive organization like General Motors, my ability to garner experience and touch on many aspects of business just wouldn't be there. Gotcha. Um, you know, so in a small business, I did sit at executive level meetings and I got to see the finances. And this is a, a young engineer and I got to sit in front of customers and close business and mm-hmm. um, work on some of the marketing and, and just touch many, many points of the business. And um, now, I, I think... If- if somebody, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, gotcha. So you think you think that that helped round you out? If somebody was if somebody was looking, if say a, a young college guy was just graduating, um, as some of our listen, most of our listeners are are younger. If they were just graduating and possibly looking for jobs, um, this is a little bit different than the typical what well, what we typically talk about on this. But I think it's an interesting subject nonetheless. Uh, looking for a job, how would you recommend that they choose which jobs? I mean, some of the, some entrepreneurs, you know, have to work a job as they work on, on their business as well. So how would you recommend, uh, to, how, how would you recommend them ch- choose between two different jobs and to kind of weigh them out? What would you look at? Well, you know, if, if people have a sense of where they want to end up, um, I never envisioned myself being an executive at a big corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, because to me to do that, um, not only is a lot of commitment to the business and so forth, but you have to you have to realize there's there's a level of politics there, and every business has it. Um, and I think for me, what I really wanted to do was um, I knew I didn't want to be allocated in specific engineering or engineering management. I wanted to get more into business strategy, and I thought which of these jobs is going to give me the add the tools to my toolkit that'll allow there'll be the springboard to the next to the next level okay um and that and that was how i felt and i and i believe that you know i would want to do small business and i like growing small businesses and um you know that's kind of where i've cut my teeth um and so you know that was the for me it just seemed like a very logical path okay and and do you believe that do you are you going back is there anything that you would change about that did that pay off well for you it certainly seems like it has um you know i think it has i have absolutely no regrets i've 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 learned a lot and and, but you you never know where that other path could have taken you um Mm -hmm. at this point but um i i certainly have no regrets now and i can tell you you know running my own company with some partners um it's a it's a there's different weights of stress but to a certain degree it's the most exciting and fun job i've ever had and i i sleep better and, you know, we can we can talk about that. But for me, I think it's a control thing and it's a desire to make your own make it make it the way you want to make it. If you believe in yourself, um, opposed to, you know, other organizations where, you know, you're you walk into an organization and you. You know, you're the newest person to the organization, so you kind of yeah. inherit that team. You got to figure out what makes them tick. When you start something on your own, you know what you're capable of. You can bring on the people that you want your way to follow your vision and can complement you the way that you know that you'd like. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. So I know, like, with when you when you started out with Hyvita, you started out with an initial plan and then kind of had to to recompose and and start on a new new path. Can you can you tell our listeners somewhat about a little bit about that and what lessons you learned? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so Hyvita is a, um, it's a new beverage product, um, H-Y-V-I-D-A.com. And um, H-Y stands for hydrogen 
It's short for hydrogen and hydration. So it's a beverage where we've infused nanobubbles of molecular hydrogen gas into a beverage where hydrogen is shown to be a superior antioxidant, perhaps more superior than vitamin C without any calories or sugars. So that gives a very unique value proposition. Um, it's gotten quite popular in Japan and, um, um, you know, there's about a dozen companies or so doing it in Japan. And uh, some of the data I've heard is the total revenue of those companies in that space could be approaching a billion dollars. And really? that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of instruments and machines that can do it, and people have really gravitated to it there. And it, um, it kind of fits their culture. You know, they're very technical-oriented. They, yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing. We tend to value bankers and um they tend to value engineers, so just kind of part of their culture. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, so when I decided that it's time to spin out and start my own thing, I reached out to some um, serial entrepreneurs, folks that uh, were customers of mine when I was working for the sensor company. And um, they um, they done a lot of medical imaging and so forth. And I reached out to them and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to start my own thing. And, and you know, I developed a very strong relationship with those folks and you know they're very they're all it's three individuals they all have phds and they're co-founders of this business of Vita. but they asked me if i'd ever heard of hydrogen infused water and i hadn't mm -hmm. and this is about 18 months ago and and one of the partners is japanese and anyway the the plan was to bring uh import a product that was already being produced and sold uh with decent success in japan and spring water right from the base of Mount Fuji. And so I did my homework and researched the market and talked to beverage people and thought I had a firm grasp on, you know, where the trends in the market were in terms of healthier products and um, waters as a category growing and, you know, soda yeah. pop and so forth declining. And, you know, so I thought, okay, it's on market trend uh, would be leading a trend in the United States, which is what you would want to do in the beverage. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you don't want to be, you know, the 20th or 30th <laughs> in the market on a new category. You're too yeah. late. Um, knock off. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, so we said, well, okay, so, you know, use the term minimum viable product, which is really, you know, is this, is this a product you can take to market? And, of course, it's being sold in Japan, and it's by very nature a minimum viable product. So mm -hmm. I went out there and, and met the folks and a good group to make a fantastic product. And I could see... You know, there's going to be a few hurdles, um, but, you know, I thought um, we'll learn. I have enough confidence in myself and my team, and we'll figure it out. You know, let's go to market, mm -hmm. but obviously we need to raise capital. So, you know, we imported a pallet load of product, and I was putting labels over the top of their label, and I was, you know, putting them on in my kitchen um, mm -hmm. and then sending them out as samples, and um, we embarked on an equity crowdfunding campaign, um, in May, actually, of 2017, and mm -hmm. um, we were able to raise 100K in the first month, and that was mainly friends of mine, and then it just went dead. Um, and, you know, we have a deep Rolodex of high net wealth people. My partners have raised millions on uh, certain medical technology-type products. And, okay. Um, we talk to the same types of investors, so there's no shortage of capital from their standpoint or investors. Okay. It was... Um, the, the investor's sense of confidence or the risk quotient was just too high for them. Okay. And um, I listened to them and I, I got an understanding. And I think, you know, um, the big feedback we received from them was, you know, it's expensive importing a product. The package size is a little too small. And um, 
logistically, uh, your flexibility is, is going to be very poor. You know, okay. you place an order, it's going to take a, a couple of weeks for the manufacturer in Japan to produce it, four weeks for it to get on a ship and cross the Pacific and get to the port of Long Beach, California. Domestic mm -hmm. logistics, you're in for eight weeks. Okay. So if the market begins to embrace the product and orders start to flow, our ability to respond is at minimum eight weeks, more realistic, 10. And okay. if we're producing domestically, your ability to respond might be four or less. Okay. Depending and, on depending on your pipeline, and the high um, demand may have may have may peak, and if you're not able to sustain it, it may may cause an issue. Well, there's that, and then you know the other questions came in. Okay, who the other is who owns the intellectual property of infusing the hydrogen? Well, we don't. Okay, okay. so in reality, Hyvita, you know, the, the notion was, wouldn't we be more of like a rebranded distributor? Um, mm -hmm. Although we have rights to the IP, we could replicate, you know, that sort of thing. The reality is. Um, there's a lot of major risk barriers to overcome. And, um, and then I really, you know, now that I have product in hand and people are tasting it, I met with some seasoned beverage people um, mm -hmm. that took it seriously. And they, they said hydrogen will be, hydrogen-fused beverages will be a, a, a very attractive category in the future. Mm -hmm. And um, and they're, they, you know, reaffirm my understanding. And, and those who get in early, the first three or four, could have a very good growth run and then potentially a big, big liquidity event by typically by way of acquisition from a major brand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they said, you know, we, we love what you're on to, you guys are bright, but the, your, your product isn't right. And they, for the reason okay. they noted, um, and I said, well, we can overcome all of this. And then, um, I met with one very seasoned beverage individual, and if there's a learning moment, it's to try to find these people as early as possible. Okay. Um, Fortunately for me, I found that individual in enough time to recover. And mm -hmm. his, his take-home message was not only do you have all those issues to get in the market and then you've got to overcome domestically to replicate the process, mm -hmm. you're, you're a beverage. By very nature, it's a brand-building business. Okay. And what will your brand be if you're importing hydrogen-infused water that's coming from a spring at the base of Mount Fuji in Japan. And it's going to be Mount Fuji spring water infused with hydrogen. It's going to have the mystique of Mount Fuji water, and that's going mm -hmm. to be part of the brand. The problem is when you go to domesticate it, you I won't see. no longer be Mount Fuji spring water. Now it'll still be hydrogen. So the technologist in me, I'm a semiconductor guy, who cares where it came from? It's got the same core technology, <laughs> you know, who cares, yeah. right? That's a real analytical thinking, but the emotional side when you're branding and the argument was probably half the client base we'd have would be drinking it just because it's spring water from Mount Fuji. Yeah. Maybe they're interested in the hydrogen. They'll take that as an added benefit. Where the other half would take the hydrogen and use the spring water as an added benefit. So you could retain that half, but the half that puts the primary value proposition on the spring water from Mount Fuji, mm -hmm. you could lose all of them. And by nature, it's a complete rebrand. So you've got mm -hmm. all this brand equity and stuff created, and it's it's a blow up of the rebrand. That, so, that sounds like some really in, that sounds like some really solid advice. How would you recommend other people in in your situation where they're looking to get some feedback, how would you recommend connecting with those people, finding those people that are able to give some high quality advice and that have experience in the field? 
um, you know, they're out there, obviously the internet and so forth, and you've got to find some industry conferences and, you know, the beverage industry and even food, but beverages industry is, there's so many brands that start up literally okay. hundreds a month is the uh -huh. number I've heard. Really? Um, yeah. And so there's a couple of interesting industry conferences that are by and large tailored to small brands. Okay. Interesting. Um, and you go to, they have like little beverage schools and they'll give you consulting. And then as you can imagine, there's a lot of in, uh, independent consulting firms that mm -hmm. com are comprised of people that maybe built their career in the beverage industry, working for the major brands, doing marketing sales, working for small brands. And they help emerging brands get in the market and get, you know, they have all the contacts and they can give you the strategy and so forth. And that's, and they attend those meetings and that's where you can network. Um, okay. and that's, and that's what I did. And I met a few of these folks and, you know, and it's very, in this case, it's, it's extremely entrepreneurial. Um, even direct competitors, okay. um, can be helpful because, you know, in this space, uh, no one company or brand can create a beverage category. And mm -hmm. so, what you what we want to see are three or four other players or five other players doing a similar hydrogen infused beverage, and we want to see them all succeed. Okay. And um, because they're going to be out educating the market, and and if they're succeeding, retailers always want multiple options on the shelf of of similar products. They don't want just one product. And um, so you know, there's that that relationship there. It's all collaborative. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so I was able to get quite a bit of unpaid consulting, just tapping into people. People mm -hmm. are very open just because they know um, if you're on to something unique, people want to make themselves available to you. I see. Um, so that way they can kind of be in on it a little bit. Well, sure. If they're offering, if they're offering a service, whatever it is, whether it's labeling, packaging, filling, in this case, supply chain and logistics, consulting, mm -hmm. sales, um, if they see that you're onto something unique, you know, it's in their best interest to establish a relationship. Mm -hmm. And if, um, in my opinion, if they're good, they'll want to give you some advice um, because they're going to want to demonstrate their skill set. Um, if people want to hoard their information and, and try to show you a resume and say, I've done all this, but I'm not going to tell you any secrets, I would shy away from those people mm -hmm. because if you did a deal with them, they're going to charge you. The meter is going to be ticking every time you ask for a piece of information. And that's yeah. not how you need to work. Yeah. And you need to create goal alignment. And um, that's what we've done with our partners is there's modest retainer capital that they get, you know, on some routine basis, quarterly or monthly. Mm -hmm. But the bigger piece is a stock option. Gotcha. Um, and then gotcha. now you have goal alignment. I, you Interesting. Know, so they're motivated to have a big liquidity event. Just like myself and my shareholders. Gotcha. So really, so really, for the the takeaway that I get from that is, if you want to, if you want, if others want to be able to run their idea by other people, they should look for different industry events where they can go and meet similar people who are pursuing similar similar ideas and have ex some people have experience in it, and then try and work with somebody who's more in it for the long haul than the quick buck, essentially. Yeah, and I think the other one is, um, you know, when you're vetting out partners, make sure you find those partners who are seasoned, savvy, 
and in and in, in financially um, in a, in a good spot. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not in a financially good spot, then they're going to grab onto any partner or client they can have. You want somebody that's selective. Okay. And if they're selective, they're selective because they can afford to be. Gotcha. Um, you know, and so, and then if they can afford to be selective, they can afford to give you a little bit of extra service and not be so worried about the mm-hmm. quid pro quo of compensation. And then later on, it'll they know it'll pay off. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. So, so once, so once you kind of said, okay, this coming from out Fuji isn't a good idea. What, what did you do to kind of rebrand it and then relaunch? And how did that go? Were you able to raise more, more venture capital from that? Uh, well, equity crowdfunding capital is where we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, well, the first was this is there's technology here. How do you how do you put hydrogen in a can? And, and what mm-hmm. prior art is there? And, and so, you know, this is all networking. And I leaned back on my um, engineering degree and the fact that I ran a semiconductor company, which is a uh, intense uh, material science business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I leveraged you know that that prior knowledge and that sort of thing and new. Uh, materials suppliers and this sort of thing. But I spoke with some, you know, kind of technical experts that were in this space and I networked with them to understand what, what avenues um, I looked at uh, a boutique player that had some kind of product samples they were producing to see if we could license some technology from them. Okay. That didn't, that didn't work. I kept every avenue open. Um, and um, I came across a process that, um, that had promise and I started dabbling with it. Um, mm-hmm. in my kitchen. And then, um, I went to a micro brew that had a, a, a single, uh, little canning line. They, they can beers right at the bar. Um, oh, really? you pour it, yeah, you pour off the tap and they have a little seamer, they call it a little canning seamer. And so I started doing, doing it there in off hours. I went in there and met with Interesting. them. Interesting. Sure. Sign an NDA with them and walked in and off hours, use some of their cans and played around. The, the challenge I had was, well, how am I going to produce this? You know, mm-hmm. where, where, where's my manufacturing partner? So, you know, I had a technique. And I, so at that point, um, what's the ideal operating model? What's the ideal technology model? Um, you know, and so uh, I went through and said, well, the technology, I want to own it. And I've got a pragmatic approach. Uh, operating model. I don't want to m- get into manufacturing my own product. And, uh, and uh, the, the, majority of the majority of the companies in Japan, that's what they were doing. In fact, mm-hmm. the company that we're going to import had their own boutique line. If you want to scale, you know, you've got to leverage the existing manufacturing infrastructure to the okay. extent possible. And so, um, back to networking, I'm, I went and met with some folks at a, a, a startup incubator shared with him my stories and they introduced me to a boutique beverage startup met with that company he had some products and i asked you know where do you have your product produced and and he gave me a name of a company and he said they were the only one that gave me a small enough minimum order volume where a lot of these manufacturers have you need to do a hundred thousand can minimum well that's just too much yeah um so i found those folks and i had a conversation with them and i went out and met with them and um, you know, on the side, they offline manually, they did a, they, we did a couple samples and yeah. it worked. And, um, you know, uh, the weird thing was, is they said, yeah, we'd love to work with you, but 
our only manufacturing line, it only does carbonated beverages. So we'll turn the CO2 up. Don't carbonate it because I can't. I'm adding hydrogen, not CO2. Mm-hmm. And they said it doesn't work. Our filler systems don't work. So they said, look, you either figure out how to do it with carbonated beverages or, you know, or you'll have to find somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't find anybody else. So necessity is the mother of invention. I figured out how <laughs> to make it work in a carbonated water, and it turned out really good. Um, mm-hmm. And so then the next phase was, well, we're on to something. And um, so we filed for provisional patent application on the concept. And then um, I went and I, we, we had these manually done samples and we sent them out to a couple of investors who were on the fence on making an investment. And that was all they needed to see. And we raised about another hundred grand. So mm-hmm. it gave, gave me another, bought me more time. Mm-hmm. And with that, we rebranded the label, um, and I used, uh, for anybody who's looking at uh, graphic design on a, on a dime, uh, go to 99designs.com, um, and you do a competition. And mm-hmm. we, we put a, a brand brief together. We did a competition, and I probably had 20 different designers uh, sending me uh design considerations i probably i was staring at hundreds of labels um and so we selected down in a month we had our our new label um and then i went back to the co-packer and we produced about 1500 cans by hand by hand on the line and i'll tell you what you guys for everybody who's listening to this podcast who hasn't seen it the cans look really quite sweet i really urge you to check out his website they're uh, they're they're really fun looking. I really like the looks of them. It caught my eye before, before I even really knew what Hyvita was about. The cans are totally different and look really cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it gets into the design brief. You know, so when as soon as we said it's it's a functional product with all these attributes in a in a carbonated water, and we're going to mm-hmm. just do a flavor essence. So there's no juice, no sugars, no sweeteners. Mm-hmm. And I love that kind of product. And and that as a category has grown, sparkling water as a category has grown twenty percent. Mm-hmm. This is where, you know, I sign a beverage branding firm and they look at the product and they say, yeah, this this has the potential to expand to a lot of places, but you can't market and brand everybody. So you have to pick your early adopter niche. What niche would embrace the product? Mm-hmm. And if the product is a sparkling water, wh- who are those folks? Where do they shop? What are their demographics? Mm-hmm. And the data all included, you know, pretty much the 20-year-old to the 45-year-old or so predominantly female and women make the, the buying decision for the household and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, you know, the labels had a bit more, have a bit more of a feminine look to them, yeah. you know, three skews, just a pure sparkling water, which is the number one selling flavor of sparkling water, mm-hmm. uh, a raspberry and a lemon lime organically flavored. And, um, you know, we produced these about 1500 little samples, uh, by hand, essentially on the production line and we sent mm-hmm. them out to investors. Um, and we, with that, we lined up the beverage brokerage or, um, a, a natural food in the natural sector, the, the natural healthy, uh, grocery sector, mm-hmm. a broker to, to be feed on the street. And they have a team of about 20 east of the Mississippi and they took these samples and we got over 200 stores to agree to buy it. And, um, the last bit was, you know, okay, so I've got all of this, I need to figure out how to produce this in high volume. I need to engineer a machine 
mm-hmm. um, that would work alongside the production line. And I need to make sure that this machine has minimal um, disruption to the existing line. And we managed to do that. We managed to figure out how to infuse hydrogen into uh, a sparkling beverage without actually um, disrupting the standard line. Because again, independent beverage bottlers are, are going to be bottling or canning a different brand every day. And what they don't want to do is have to tear apart their line for one brand and then that's just a cardinal sin. Yeah. So we, we figured out how to do that. Um, and, um, and the machine was very economical. Um, I was able to, um, um, you know, get my supply line to pretty much full commoditization. So I don't have any vendors that have patents or unique IP that could hold us hostage mm-hmm. in the future. Um, and those are all things I learned, you know, working at small businesses. Yeah. When you, when yeah. I was in unique technology, we were always looking at uh, partners who had enabling complementary technology to help us disrupt the market. Mm-hmm. And when I was a vendor of semiconductor sensors, there were a lot of times where we were the only vendor in the world that could do it. And that was a big reason why we weren't able to secure some business because mm-hmm. we had too much leverage as a supplier. And so in this case, I'm a customer. I don't want my supplier to have leverage over me. So I was able to ensure that I've commoditized my supply line. Um, you know, got all those things in place. Um, and we just did our first full production run about a month and a half back and mm-hmm. lined up lined up two major distributors getting on board there. And we should be in a few hundred stores in a couple of weeks or mm-hmm. I'd say a month. And you guys um, are even available on Amazon right now too, right? Yeah, we've been on Amazon for almost a month now, and um, orders are picking up, and, um, you know, we're excited. We've uh, we've really turned around. We're the first in the world to, to introduce a, a hydrogen-infused sparkling water. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is when I first started to explore this, I said, geez, um, I think I figured out how to do a sparkling water hydrogen-infused. And I got a hold of an individual who's... Um, kind of an industry expert, mm-hmm. um, I said, I don't want to infringe anybody's uh, intellectual property. And he mm-hmm. said, well, there are, th- there are three patents in Japan for mm-hmm. it. So, oh, wow. So I, I looked, and they're all method patents, and they're all different than mine, totally different. Mm-hmm. And those patents have been around for a few years. The problem with those patents are they fundamentally they work on paper, but nobody can figure out how to implement it because all of the existing beverage filling infrastructure is designed to be used in a particular way. No, so this is you were so talking this, earlier. You were talking earlier a little bit, Rick. Just I want I want to add this before before I forget about it. You were talking earlier about how you know necessity can be the mother of invention. Um, now I, I don't know how much you want to share about this when we were talking about it earlier, but. Now you can infuse hydrogen into many different things, correct? So it kind of opens up a lot of a lot of different opportunities. Yeah, there's a lot of different products we can you know we can infuse in. Um, you know, obviously anything carbonated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've done beers. We can do spike salters, that sort of <laughs> thing, um, which opens the door for a lot of things. There's data that's shown that hydrogen infused beverages have reduced hangovers. Um, well, wow. you know, so. Maybe we do put it in a spike salsa, or maybe we put it into a beer. Um, there you go. You've you got know. all the college kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you know, um, and so who knows where this goes? But it's it's exciting to have a, a, a 
you know, a bank of intellectual property. We've got two other patent applications we're contemplating right now. We're doing some preliminary research. But, you know, there's potential we could carve this out into a couple different entities, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, to address, you know, particular market applications. Huh. Um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're actually really excited. I would have um, never thought 12 months ago that I'd be at this spot. <laughs> um, but you know, you know, it, it goes back to I want to do something on my own, and um, and you have to believe in yourself. And I think I think the thing that um, you know, one of my partners was very concerned because I had a minimum viable product, and mm -hmm. you know, um, but I think the issue, you know, people can cling on to an idea for too long. I'm yeah. not saying forget about it. And I think the other thing is if you're new to the market and you sense that more people are going to enter the space, the window of opportunity to secure intellectual property is closing with mm -hmm. every day. Because as more people enter, the probability and likelihood of those people coming up with the invention you're about to create is there. Mm -hmm. So you, if you're, you know, that's, that's how it works. People who generally enter the market early gobble up the vast majority of the intellectual property. So if you're, if you're, if you're one of the first people into the market, the, really the takeaway from this is that you really need to act with urgency and quickly file for IP. That way you, you have the IP and nobody gets there first. Correct. And you can file things like provisional applications, right? Mm -hmm. Which you can do rather economically. And then if you find out that there's prior art or it's not worth filing for various mm -hmm. reasons, you can jettison it or, you got 12 months to file the full application so you can learn about the product and, and refine your understanding of the IP and, and that goes into the creation of the patent. Yeah. Now, talk, we, when we were talking previously, uh, we met at the Hub last week, I believe it was, and we were talking about another product. Uh, you were there with me to kind of give some feedback. Really interesting product that we're, I, I think it's really interesting that we might be working on. Um, or helping out with, I was really interested and I was, it was something I hadn't thought about personally was you were talking about the different ways to raise capital for a nonprofit versus a for-profit. And that was something that I hadn't even thought of or come across previously. So what are your tips to help other businesses raise money? That was something I hadn't thought of. What would, what would you recommend to just a general business? What would, what tips would you give them? Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, you've, you've got to figure out, um, you know, first of all, the product in the market and then, you know, the financials and that sort of thing. We, we all, uh, I think, appreciate that. Um, but you do have to have a story. And I think the, the other key part, um, you know, investors are savvy. Um, mm -hmm. You've got to ask yourself all the possible questions that any investor would ask. Okay. And then go find people who you know won't invest, but are savvy business people. And maybe they do <laughs> invest in other places, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, I did kind of coin this term. Um, I gave a presentation and we always talk about key stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And I have an acronym KEYNOSH, which stands for key non-stakeholders. <laughs> um, and there are organizations that do that. We, you know, in Muskegon, Michigan, Muskegon Inventors Network, and we have people coming with invention ideas. And we have no skin in the game, only to see that person make the right decisions. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and so we don't have a bias. We'll provide our insights for whatever it's worth. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, what happens is, is you get a lot of sound feedback from people from a different perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, 
you know, you want to cut your teeth on that. It's just like a comedian. You know, you're not going to go do your first ever approach at a joke in front of a major crowd. You're going to go mm-hmm. to the small boutique clubs and refine it and refine it. So it's about refining your pitch. And it's okay. not just doing it in the mirror. It's doing it in front of people um, okay. and allowing them to ask those questions. Then when you get in front of the investor, they'll say, wow, you know, you've really thought this through. It's, yeah. it's such... The, the 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 presentation is one thing, the numbers are one thing, the products one thing, but you're selling yourself. Mm-hmm. You're selling yourself, and you've got to come across convincing and humble. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the other part. Can that individual take direction from experts in the market and listen mm-hmm. to it, or is their ego going to be in the way, or their insecurity going to be the way, and they're not going to accept that? And mm-hmm. you know, I think from my journey, at least, this is a testament to me not being you know, egotistical or, you know, saying, Hey, I made a bet on this product from Japan. Therefore mm-hmm. I've got to make that succeed. I made a bet on myself that I yeah. would get a, I would get a hydrogen infused beverage off the ground. I just had, uh, what I called a minimum viable product and it was a means to an end. And yeah. I knew the sooner I got rid of that and the sooner I liberated myself to having full control of the intellectual property and domesticated process, the yeah. faster I would grow. So I was already motivated to do that. And the fact that I, I got input from industry experts that guided me along the way, you know, I, I was willing to take their, their insight and a lot of harsh criticism uh, uh-huh. on the product that I had. So um, didn't take it personal, listened and, and responded. Gotcha. So, so really, you would recommend that they first start out with smaller people, and especially uh, some people that they know are experts in the industry or or know a lot about investing, at least, but probably won't invest in their product. Pitch it to them first and get their feedback, and then from there, go to the people where they are really the the big dogs in their industry that they want that they want to invest in their in their product. And then having cut their teeth on, on the previous pitches, they'll they'll be able to do better and, and be able to sell themselves as well as the product at that point. It's possible, but I don't think it's that fast. I think there's a missing step. It's cut your teeth okay. on people. Cut your teeth on people who you know won't be an investor. Okay. Because you, you don't want to make a mistake on somebody that could be a decent investor. Okay. Um, then go find the people that like early stage investments. Uh-huh. You know, you're not going to get a big institutional investor. Um, you're too mm-hmm. risky. They bring, you know, they want to see sales and so forth. Um, even a business like ourselves, we've raised 600K. We're probably going to raise another couple hundred within a month. Um, mm-hmm. But I've, you know, now we're, we're getting phone calls from these institutional investors. Mm-hmm. And, and and they'll tell, they'll tell me right now, you know, you're still too young as a business for mm-hmm. us, but we love what you're doing and we want to monitor you. And, you know, maybe in a year there's a fit. That's just how gotcha. it's going to work. You know, so everybody's got their risk quotient. They want to see certain metrics. So my questions to them are, okay, I get it. Um, you know, I, I do believe we're too early. Can you give me core metrics that you want to see? What okay. you know, help me, help me lay out my roadmap. You okay. know, and and I'm not so worried about um, you know some massive exit five years down the road. I'm I'm looking at my six to twelve month calendar mm-hmm. because if I can't get there. Forget about the five-year plan, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, just make sure I put my, my the foundation in place that I don't do anything to present a roadblock, like scalability. You know, you could have a factory and you could produce so many units, and um, that's great. And then in year two, you've, you're completely um, uh, capacity constrained, 
and now you want to go beyond that, you have market pull, but you don't have enough operating capital to expand your business, you're diluting equity. Um, you know, so those are the things that you want to be, be mindful of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how scalable is it and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Huh. Interesting. Well, Rick, uh, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time here. I've got one last, one last quick question for you. For anybody out there, what would be your best advice to help grow a small business? I know you had a lot of experience in that area, and that's why, why you originally chose to take that job. So what would be your, your advice to help grow a small business? I think it's more of um, understanding yourself. Okay. You know, um, I don't care how how conservative you set your your timelines, your financial models. Things never go as fast as you hope. Um, mm-hmm. So you know you you better understand how hard you're willing to dig in and fight. Um, you know, and and continue to uh, never give up. Um, if you just you know, if you're the kind of individual that, um, you know, thinks it won't be that hard or so forth, you know, I think you might want to rethink it. But if you're mm-hmm. really willing to give it a go um, and really dig in and fight, there's opportunity there. And then the other interesting piece that I have found is there's probably five or six times where I initially ran into what I thought to be a, a, a killer roadblock. Mm-hmm. And... Every time those were opportunities to rethink the game and mm-hmm. I, came, I came out better, okay. um, you know, so when you run into those huge roadblocks, sometimes you need to take a pause and rethink the game, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's what we did. And um, so far, so good. Hmm. Well, awesome. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate you uh, sharing your advice. I think the biggest takeaways that I've that I've uh, received from this is first, uh, like you said, uh, learning from you is to to raise money. You want to first pitch to people who aren't important to who are important to help you learn, but aren't important to the investing. Um, and then eventually work your way up once you've learned from them and revise your pitch to work your way up to there. And also, it, it's pre, it's it's clear to see that you have a lot of knowledge, and uh, it, it appears that a lot of that came from the path that you chose, where you chose to earn a lot of different knowledge and learn a lot of valuable lessons and now it's kind of all culminating into high vita and you're able to launch that successfully so that's really interesting i'm excited to see where that takes you well so am i (laughs) (laughs) yeah no thank you thank you for your time i have good questions i always enjoy the dialogue and um you know thanks for having me appreciate it absolutely rick absolutely so just to just to recap if you guys want to check out his product uh go to highvida.com h-y-v-i-d-a.com um if you want to check check me out on social media it's sam ventosia uh the my last name it will be spelled out in the description for the podcast um rick are you on social medias at all instagram what about highvita where's highvita at uh, we're, yeah, we're all in the, kind of the big social media. So it's, it's at Hyvita brands. Okay. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. And like yeah. I said, check out, check out his, uh, his branding. I really like his cans. They're really neat. So go check them out guys. Awesome. Thanks Rick for having us or, uh, for being on our show. I really appreciate it. All right. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it as well. Thank you.